0: Before we turn to God's Word this morning, again, a a word of welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. Uh, This is the part of the service, like most Christian services, where we give our attention uh, to the explanation of God's Word. And so uh, you'll need your Bibles, and we invite you to take those out. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, and particularly if you don't have a Bible of your own, just raise your hands and uh, some lovely folks in the aisles will bring you one. If you raise your hand and and keep it up, uh, we'll bring your Bible uh, so you can follow us in God's Word this morning. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you don't have a Bible at home, or maybe you've got a translation that you don't understand very well, we invite you to take this Bible, Brother Julian, one up front here, we invite you to take this Bible and make it your own. Write your name in it. Consider that our gift to you. On Easter Sunday morning, we can't think of a better gift to give you than God's Word in which there is life. Amen? Also, church family, this morning, um, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, we are in effect celebrating life, aren't we? We are celebrating the victory of life over death. We're celebrating Christ's triumph over the grave on our behalf. And uh, that, that really is an affirmation of all of life certainly eternal life and spiritual life, but it's also an affirmation of this physical life. Uh, And so how appropriate it is that we celebrate this morning with our brother Alex and our sister Julia Cook uh, in the announcement of their expectancy. And uh, looking forward to, oh baby, amen. Julia's not feeling that great this morning, so she's taking up a post on the back row, but uh, remember her in prayer and encourage them as we celebrate life together as a a church family. if you have your Bibles turned with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We come again to our series through this book, a series that we've entitled Our Treasures in Christ. Our Treasures in Christ... And we've been going through the book at a paragraph level, sort of one sermon per paragraph. And in each paragraph, trying to sort of peer into the good treasure, the riches that we have as a consequence of being God's people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the treasures that we come to this morning is the treasure itself of Christian ministry the treasure of Christian ministry. Now I say that with a little bit of trepidation because I don't want anybody to think this is a a self-serving sermon. I'm a pastor and uh, I'm preaching a a sermon on uh, how great pastors are uh, and with the hopes of currying your favor. Well, two things. One, if I'm a faithful pastor, I don't care about your favor. (laughs) We do this for an audience of one. Do we do this to please men or to please Christ, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, to please Christ. But number two, I already know your favor. I already know your love. I already know your encouragement. Uh, We all do as pastors. Uh, And so we come to this really because it's the next section of God's word. And God means for us to think about this and to rejoice in this as a good gift to us bless you. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, I want to suggest to you is one of those places in the Bible where you read the pastor's job description. If you ever want to know what a pastor is to do, here's a good place to go to see the bullet points of his job description and to see what his employer, Christ, expects of him. And it's my great joy to teach you my job, right? So you will know how to accurately judge me. Uh, You will know what to be looking for. And when the Lord calls us away from this place uh, to heaven and leaves ARC here and you have to call new elders or call new pastors, you will know what you're searching for. And one of the great confusions in Christ's church occurs at this moment. When a shepherd is carried on to glory or carried on to some other station and the people then have to select another pastor and for years they've enjoyed the benefit of that ministry but they have not actually thought about what was actually happening and what they should look for. So we wish to consider the pastor's job description in Colossians 1 verses 24 to 29. Before I read it, anybody want to recite it? Any takers this morning? Uh, Ah, y'all took Easter off, huh? All right, we'll keep moving. Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to suggest that the pastor has four four, four items on his job description. Number one, to joyfully suffer for the church. To joyfully suffer for the church. That's verse 24. Number two, to faithfully serve the word to the church. To faithfully serve the word to the church. That's verses 25 and 26. Number three, to widely show To widely show the glory of Christ to the nations. To show the glory of Christ to the nations. That's verse 27. Then verses 28 and 29, number 4. To shepherd everyone to maturity in Christ. To shepherd everyone to maturity in Christ. And as we consider this this morning, I pray the Lord would help us to understand and to rejoice in the good things of His Word. So Paul writes in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And that's a striking sentence, isn't it? I mean, who rejoices when they suffer? Uh, Notice the word is plural. I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul has in mind here all kinds of suffering, physical, social, emotional. If you've read his letters, you know he can write to the churches and say, as he does to the Corinthians, listen, I've been whipped several times, 39 lashes. I've been shipwrecked. I've been hungry. I've been uh, in darkness. I've been in prison. Paul was a man who suffered greatly in the work of the ministry. All kinds of sufferings. And notice here the second thing that really is stunning He says, in my flesh that is in his body, in his physical body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now Paul does not mean that somehow what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection is insufficient. No, 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 no. The death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as an atonement for our sins is all the world needs in order to escape the judgment of God coming against the world and in order to live in the presence of God for eternity. He doesn't mean that the cross is insufficient, but he does mean that there's a a sense in which the extension of Christ's sufferings continues in the church. He writes over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that just as the sufferings of Christ overflow in our lives, so also does the comfort or the grace of Christ overflow in our lives. You see, Paul understands the Christian ministry to be an extension of Christ's life in the world because of our union with Christ by faith. We suffer as Christ suffers. In that sense, the afflictions of Christ the hardships of Christ, the burdens and the sorrows of Christ come into the pastor's life, come into the Christian's life. So when you think of the Christian ministry, think not about stages and lights and platforms and audiences listening to you. When you think of the Christian ministry, Think of Gethsemane with its agony. Think of Pilate's court with its beatings and its mockings. Think of Calvary's cross with its cry of forsakenness. It's the afflictions of Christ that pour over into the life of his servants. Listen, beloved, I know too many men eager for ministry, but allergic to suffering. Some form of suffering and affliction and hardship is inescapable in the Christian ministry because it's the suffering of Christ overflowing into us. And so every Christian, including the minister, especially the minister, is, who is spiritually united with Christ, we are to expect then things like persecution. Didn't the Lord tell us that? Would you expect that if they mistreated him, they would mistreat us? We to expect hardship. We are united to the Lord in His suffering. And that's why it shouldn't be strange, one of the apostles write, when we find ourselves in various kinds of trials. The world does not love Christ, and the world does not love His people. But it's not, again, just the physical suffering that Paul lays hold to. Even when he says, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking. I think Paul means for us to understand that this suffering is profound. The most profound aspects of the suffering are relational and social. This is why Paul writes over in Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, he had founded that church, he had preached the gospel to that church, he'd given birth to that church, and that church had kind of turned on him. And in Galatians 4, 16, he says, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That's what breaks the apostle's heart. Or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, when he says there to Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. (laughs) Can you imagine the whole continent of Asia? You know how many people in Asia? They've all turned away from me. The churches have turned away from me he writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 11 to 13, after talking about his sufferings in that chapter, he says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Listen to this. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Open your hearts to me. My heart is open to you. That's the most poignant kind of suffering in the pastor's life. To have people you love and have given your life to close off their heart in return. It's not just Paul you consider the statistics on pastors, a number of surveys from Focus on the Family and others sort of inquiring about the well being of pastors. Let me just run off some of these statistics for you. 90% of pastors work more than 46 hours a week. You read that and you go, well, big whoop, you know, <laughs> lots of people work a lot. But then notice the rest of the statistics 80% believe pastoral ministry affects their families negatively, 8 out of 10. believe ministry is a hazard to their family. 75% report a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. 50% felt themselves unable to meet the demands of the job. 90% felt inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. 70% said they have a lower self-esteem now compared to when they started in ministry. And 40% report serious conflict with the parishioner at least once a month. And 70% say they do not have someone they consider a close friend in the church. 45% of their wives say the same thing. 12% of ministers report they were depressed often or always in their ministry. Over 2,000 pastors leave the ministry each month. One wonders how the church remains open. The Southern Baptist Convention paid out one year $64 million in stress-related claims, second only in to maternity benefits. Statistically, most pastors feel overworked, underappreciated, stressed, lonely, in conflict with somebody and inadequate for the ministry. And beloved, often the source of the suffering are the people they shepherd. That's what the statistics are telling us. That's what Paul's example teaches us. But Paul says he rejoices in his sufferings and his afflictions. And you have to ask yourself, is Paul crazy? <laughs> is, is, he, is he just some weird dude who gets pleasure out of pain? Right? Is how can he rejoice in the suffering? And the answer is there in verse 24 as well. Notice Paul does not let his mind stop with the suffering. He knows his suffering has a purpose. The purpose is the blessing and the building up of the church. So he says it is for your sake. He says to the Colossians he is filling up Christ's afflictions in his body for the sake of his body, that is the church. In other words, Paul thinks about his suffering the way Jesus thought about his suffering. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked square into the cross. He looked square into its suffering. He saw the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him. He knew that he would be afflicted by God. He would be stricken by God, and he would suffer for all the sins of the world. And he looked past it. And he saw you, beloved, who believe. And he said, for the joy of bringing to myself a people who will be my very own and having them for all eternity, for the joy of cleansing them of their sin, for the joy of robing them in righteousness, for the joy of offering up a people to my Father who will will sing his praises for all of eternity. For that joy, I endure this shame. And the cross, as horrible as it was was eclipsed by the beauty of that glory. Of that joy on the other side. Beloved, a pastor, all of you who are aspiring to be pastors all of you who are pastors, all of you who have a pastor the pain of pastoral ministry is only endurable if the pastor can see the joy of the church, Amen. of Christ in the church, and his work in the church. And so how do we take verse 24 and how do we apply it to our lives? Well, maybe, maybe you're a Christian here. Maybe you're a member of this church or a member of another church, and you're thinking about your pastor right now. And the thing about those statistics, those are things that most pastors do because they have no friends in the church, alone They they look put together on Sunday. They wear their suit and they parse their Greek verbs and they they teach a, a sermon that encourages and then they go home and weep when nobody sees them, but their wives. And then their wives are over time discouraged and weakened, right? So what do you do? How do you help your pastor? Let me give you two things for sheep. Number one, pray for the strength of your pastor's pray for the strength of your pastors, we are not men who can stand without prayer. We are not men who are strong enough to shoulder the church without your prayers. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, listen, I was suffering so much that we felt like we had the sentence of death written in our hearts. And then he says this, he says a remarkable thing. He says, this happened so that we might not rely upon ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. He understood that God was freeing him from self-reliance. God was freeing him from self-sufficiency. God was freeing him from relying on his own power so that he might forget himself and forsake himself and rely only on God. Pray that for your pastor. His reliance would be upon the power of God. Number two, commit, so far as you are able, commit to never hurting a pastor. The thing about sheep is that they bite. Once had the privilege of going to Scotland and visiting a friend in Scotland who actually owns a, a sheep, what do you call it? A sheep farm. I don't know what you call it. F- a flock. Yeah. And so he drives us out to the countryside to take a look at the sheep. Because, you know, I'm a shepherd, right? <laughs> so so we're, we're stepping very carefully through the sheep hole, you know, to get over to the sheep where his actual shepherds have a smaller corral and they're forcing the sheep into this corral. And the corral narrows so that the sheep eventually are in a single file, file line. And at the end is a little gate where they sort of firmly but lovingly grip the, hip the sheep in a headlock. And they hold the sort of sheep's head up so they can put the medicine in the sheep's mouth. Make sure they take the medicine. And the sheep kick and snip and bite. And you look at their arms, and their arms are pocked and scarred from the biting of sheep. You may not notice about yourself, but you bite. <laughs> and it hurts. <laughs> Insofar as it depends upon you, commit yourself to never, certainly intentionally, hurting a pastor. Instead, remember 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 says there that the elders who serve well among you are worthy of double honor. Re- remember those passages of Scripture that, that call you to consider the way of life of your elders and to follow them, Hebrews thirteen seven Or Hebrews thirteen seventeen, which calls you to uh, submit to your leaders, those who are in authority over you, knowing that they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. And it explains, it's to no advantage to you not to do that. Honor your leaders. So that their work, the text says, Hebrews 13, 17, would be a joy. Now, I told you this is a risky sermon. It, it might sound self-serving and all that. Like I have never been happier in my life as a pastor. I know those statistics. I have had some of them reflect my life. I know that pain of loneliness. It's not been my life for over two years now. I have never been happier. Doesn't mean that we don't suffer as we shoulder with you the brokenness of sin, as we mourn with you difficulties in your relationships, as we see in you things we can't fix but God has to fix, and as we sometimes face from others the slings and darts. Pray for your pastors. Commit yourself to encourage them. And those who would be pastors, how does this apply to you? Well, I think they're they're pretty obvious, so let me just tick them off for you. Number one, if you would serve as an elder or a pastor in a local church, if you are currently serving as an elder or a pastor in a local church, let us apply this in three ways. Number one, let us expect suffering. We just ought to expect it. We're not looking for it. We're not trying to create it. You know, we're we're not not crazy like that, but but it should not surprise us because Christ suffered and we have entered into his work. Number two, let us focus on the beneficiaries. Our suffering in God's providence is used for the blessing of his church. We, We have to see not just the pain, but we have to see what's produced by the pain as we endure the suffering for the sake of his church. And that means, beloved, if you would be a pastor, you must treasure the local church. So the the treasure in this text is not just a pastor who will suffer for you. The treasure in this text, especially for the pastor, are the people that he will suffer for. Regards the church so high that he doesn't mind his pain. So let us expect suffering, let us focus on the beneficiaries, but let us look for our reward beyond the suffering. I love the way the Apostle Peter puts this in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 5. He begins there in verse 1 by writing to those uh, elders that are around the the world, the known Christian world at that time. And he says, basically, I am a, a fellow sufferer with Christ. He describes himself as a fellow elder who has shared in the sufferings of Christ. And then he reminds them, verse 4, he tells them to, to, to shepherd the sheep that have been entrusted to them. But in verse 4, he says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's reward. And if that wasn't clear, then he comes down in verse 10 and he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a good promise from a good God. His servants who suffer in His cause, He will take care of. He will reward with an unfading crown of glory, but He Himself will also restore and establish and strengthen His shepherds. So we are to look to the reward that is to come. Might put it this way. Whether you're a pastor or a Christian and you're suffering, for joy, remember this, that pain in the service of Christ is producing for you pleasure in the presence of Christ. Your pain in the service of Christ is producing for you pleasure in the presence of Christ. Here's how Paul puts it in another letter. That our light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an exceeding weight of glory to which those afflictions are not even worthy to be compared. We have to keep our eyes on that. Such a pastor and such a church is a treasure. Number two. Not only is he to suffer joyfully, but the pastor is also to serve faithfully. He is to faithfully serve the word to the church. We see that in verses 25 and 26. Paul there having mentioned the body of Christ and explained that that's the church, he then sort of turns and thinks about his own calling. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. You see that word there, minister? We could translate that servant. Paul sees himself as a servant of the church. And he also views himself as a steward. You see, there a, he's a servant according to the stewardship from God given to him. A steward is one who takes care of somebody else's possession. And if they're good stewards, they take care of it the way the owner wants them to take care of it, right? And so he says, I'm a steward according to what God has given to me. Now this stewardship is from God, which means Paul did not thrust himself into the ministry. God pushed him into the ministry. And as a steward, notice that the, the, he's doing the stewardship, again, for the church. It was given to him for you, for the Colossians, for the Christian church. Paul's just a middleman. He's the, he's the pass-through. He is, he is not the point. The the Word proclaimed faithfully is the point. Remember this, beloved. No minister in the Christian church is the point. The Word, the Gospel, God, Jesus is the point. Always. According to the Bible now, the primary responsibility of a steward is to be faithful. You can write these texts down and look at them later if you want to. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes there, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Almost the exact same thing he's saying back over in Colossians. And then he says this in verse 2, Moreover, it is required that stewards be found faithful. That's the final exam. Faithfulness. Or consider what he tells Timothy over in Ephesus when he writes to to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2 and he tells Timothy that he should um, remember what he's heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses and he tells Timothy to take that same teaching that he has heard and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The ministry rides on the back of faithfulness. God's requirement of his under-shepherds Is faithfulness, that we be true, that we be doing what he called us to do, when he called us to do it, where he called us to do it, how he called us to do it, that we be faithful. Now, what does that look like? What does a pastor's faithfulness in the ministry of the word, in the service of the word, look like in the life of the church? Well, Paul explains it for us there, verse 25 and 26 make the word of God fully known. And he clarifies what he means here. The mystery hidden for ages but, and generations but now revealed to the saints. Paul's job, my job, Matt's job, Andrew's job, Jahil's job, Jeremy's job is to do precisely this. To explain what was hidden for ages which is a reference to the Old Testament but now revealed to the saints which is a reference to Christ in the New Testament. When Paul uses the word mystery in his letters, he's normally referring to what we call the gospel. So the pastor's task is to give you the gospel from every portion of scripture from that portion of Scripture where the gospel seemed to be veiled or hidden, and in that portion of Scripture where the gospel is unveiled and shown, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, the Bible is about one thing. It's about the Son of God coming into the world to redeem for Himself a people, to take their place and and obey God to provide their righteousness, and to take their place in suffering the judgment of God against their sins, and to be raised from the grave three days later for our justification. All of the Bible is about that message. All of the Bible in some way is is pointing to those truths. The Old Testament is the gospel hidden and the New Testament is the gospel revealed. That's how they fit together. So here's the rule for all of us would-be Bible preachers and teachers. The Word of God is not fully known until the mystery of God is fully shown. The Word of God is not fully known until the mystery of God is fully shown, it's opened and explained to the people. So this means, beloved, this pulpit should proclaim the gospel from every text of Scripture in a way that's natural to that portion of Scripture. This means, beloved, that this pulpit should include the gospel in every sermon. That's the difference between a Christian sermon and a nice speech. This means that this pulpit should call people to respond to the gospel in every sermon. If a steward must be faithful and the job is to make the hidden mystery clear, then no sermon is properly a Christian sermon until it deals with this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Again, it might be good speech, but it ain't a sermon. It might be a moving story, but it ain't the good news. It might motivate you to do better, but it cannot save you unless you hear the gospel. So the obvious question right now, if you're new to Christianity and new to this church, might be, what is the gospel? It's the main thing, beloved. It is simple, but it's profound. Here it is in four acts. Act number one, God created everything. That includes you and me. And because he created everything, he owns everything and includes you and me. We were made to know God and to obey God and to live with God in his love. That's act number one. That's what happens in the first two chapters of the Bible. Act number two. Instead of our first parents, Adam and Eve, living with God in his his love, they decide they want to do their own thing. They decide they're going to keep it 100. They're going to do them. <laughs> they're going to disobey. God said, don't eat from this tree. And Eve's like, ooh, that look good. She took from the tree. She gave to her husband. They both ate. And for the first time in the universe, something God made had disobeyed him. And with that act entered into the entire world the reality of sin. And every person born since Adam and Eve share with Adam and Eve this sin nature. And we are separated from God because of our sin nature and we live under the threat of God's final judgment against us because of sin. That's how Act 2 closes with all of us kicked out of the presence of God in danger of His judgment. Act 3, God decides to do something about it. So he sends his son into the world. He came to do two things. To represent us before God by obeying God in all the ways that we had disobeyed God. And number two, to suffer at the hands of God the judgment that we deserve. That's what the cross is about. Jesus Christ came into the world in our likeness, in our our flesh, but he was without sin. And Jesus Christ did for us what we could not do. In fact, what we didn't even want to do. He obeyed God when we were going our own way. That's how he becomes our righteousness. And then Jesus, in great love for us, the Bible tells us, he didn't just sort of walk off the scene. He goes to the cross where we should have been nailed, where we should have been punished, where we should have been judged. And and the cross was really just a commercial for an eternity, an unending agony of God's judgment against sin. And he took it all. He suffered it all in our place. All of the wrath of God, all of the anger of God, all of the righteous judgment of God against all of the sin of the world is poured out on the Son of God. He's buried. And three days later, as we're celebrating this morning, he was raised from the grave. And that act where God raised him from the grave was God saying to the world, I accept his sacrifice. I am pleased with my son. And then begins act four where all of the Christian church, all of the apostles, and every preacher since the apostles are sent into the world to proclaim this message and to tell everyone, this not only this, the facts of this message, that Christ came into the world to save us from our sins, but to let everybody know that God now expects every creature to repent of their sins and to place their faith in Christ and to follow Him as their Lord and their God in the obedience that comes from faith. In other words, he tells us now, you've been going your own way, turn around. That's repentance. You've been going the wrong way, come back to me. And he's saying to everyone, not only do you turn around to me, but as you turn around to me, put your trust in my son. Believe that he is my son. Believe that he died for your sins. Believe that he provided your righteousness. Believe that in him, you're going to have eternal life. And here's the promise, everyone who trusts in Christ shall be saved. Rescued from the judgment of hell. And kept by God for his love. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God made you. You rebelled. God sent his son to save you. Now you must trust in him as your Lord and your Savior. And you will be saved. Now maybe you've heard that for the first time. You only have to hear it once to believe it. Put your faith in Christ. Or maybe it's the 50th time you've heard it and you've got questions. Ask your questions today. Don't leave today without getting help for your questions. There are answers. And whether for the first time or the 50th time, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the mystery that God has now revealed and calls you to believe. Now Paul says here, His job is to make the gospel fully known. That is to explain this mystery. But I think he means more in that phrase fully known than just his pulpit ministry. Remember we're talking about the pastor's job description. His ministry of the word is not less than the pulpit but it must be more than the pulpit. And so we're asking the question what does faithfulness look like in this? I want to point us to two other passages of scripture. Acts chapter 20 beginning in verse 24. Let me give you the context. The Apostle Paul is on his way to Rome. He's passing through Ephesus again, a city where he once ministered, where he founded the church. And he calls for the elders, the other pastors in Ephesus, to come meet him as he's on his way to his journey. And it's a tear-filled scene. The elders there know that Paul is not coming back, that he's likely going to a Roman prison, and he's likely to die in prison. And he does, as far as we know, under house arrest. And so they're weeping with Paul, and Paul is telling them sort of his last words. And in the middle of giving them his last charge, his last exhortation, he talks about his ministry among them, and it's a picture of faithfully proclaiming the word of God fully, making it fully known. Verse 24 of Acts chapter 20, he says, I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's an amazing statement. He says, I don't care about my life as long as I can preach the gospel. I don't mind going to Rome where I'm going to be in prison and likely killed as long as I can testify to Jesus. That's Paul's attitude. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day That I am innocent of the blood of all. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I made the word of God fully known to you. And therefore I am not guilty for your life. Notice what he says, jumping down to verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. That's a picture of faithfully proclaiming the Word of God and making it fully known. Night and day, year after year, exhorting the people of God with the Word of God. Or consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this beautiful passage. Paul writes there to the Thessalonians and he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, there it is again, we are stewards of the gospel So we speak not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Verse seven. Notice his ministry. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul says, "Look, I'm like I'm like your mama." I'll share with you not only what I know, but I'll give my life to you. And then he goes on in verse 11. Notice this. For you know how like a father with his children now, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says, I was a mother and a father to you. I was gentle with you, but also strong with you. That we might call you to live in a manner that God has called you to live. That's what declaring the whole counsel of God looks like. House to house, person to person, year to year, until Christ comes. This means, beloved, that you need a pastor in your life, in your business. Applying God's word and calling you to obey it. Your pastors need pastors in their lives. Every Christian needs this. And beloved, listen, your life plus all of God's Word equals spiritual growth. That's how you blossom in the things of the Lord. See, your life plus part of God's Word equals partial growth. You walk the Christian life with a limp. We must declare the full counsel of God. We must make the Word of God fully known in every life, in every heart. Now if you find a pastor who will suffer for you and who will teach you God's word, you have found a treasure. Every church needs to be able to recognize how much of Christ is in such a man. I wonder if you've seen it in these first two points. In these first two points Paul has given us the suffering servant. The suffering servant. If you know your Bibles, then you know from Isaiah several chapters that Jesus himself, the Messiah, is regarded as the suffering servant. Paul is simply entering into that very life and pattern that Christ has already lived. The faithful pastor is simply doing that. He is becoming a suffering servant for your sake. Such a person is a great treasure. Matt Schmucker is a great treasure. Andrew Nichols is a great treasure. Jahil Richards is a great treasure. And though he's somewhere else preaching and starting another church, Jerry McLean is a great treasure. Tell him when you see him. Let these brothers know your love and appreciation for them. They endure hardship like good soldiers that they might give to you the whole counsel of God for your growth and your joy in the Lord. Honor such men. Which brings us to number three, and the rest get quicker, all right? Number three, show the glory of Christ. That's what a pastor is to do, to show the glory of Christ. Verse 27, to them, meaning to the saints mentioned in verse 26, God chose to make known or to show how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This verse says God wants to show something to the church. God wants to show us his glory. Now, if you were Jewish in the times of the Apostle Paul, you would find the reference to the Gentiles very surprising. Gentiles are all the people groups of the world who are not Jewish. God had made promises to Israel, to Jewish persons, to send them a Savior, a Messiah. God had made a special relationship with Israel, a covenant with Israel. And God had sent the Scriptures to the Jewish people. So all that we have in this book of God's Word comes through the hands of Jewish persons, with the possible exception of Luke was hanging out with Jewish people. God has made these promises and given them to us through his people. So Jewish people in the times of, of Paul were accustomed to thinking of their relationship with God not involving non-Jews. But the text says God is going to show his glory, notice among the Gentiles. The nations, all the people groups of the world, are the theater for the display of the great riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you. We will see God's glory revealed among all peoples. That was God's plan from the beginning. And what God does among the nations is interesting. It will magnify His glory in us. This is hard to break down. Follow follow what Paul says. How, how glory travels around the world, the world in this text. Paul says that to them, to the saints, God's chosen to make something known. But he's going to make it known out there among the Gentiles. And as they see the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, notice what happens. It comes back in you. Christ in you will be the hope of glory. Seeing the gospel advanced among the nations and seeing the nations come to honor Christ has this peculiar effect in God's people, namely to make them treasure and delight in and hope in Christ and the glory we will have when he comes. God's glory is not just out there, beloved. The marvelous thing is God's glory is in here too if we're Christians because Christ lives in us. And that hope of glory is not the glory of this time or even the glory of this world. It's that final perfect glory which is to come. So Christ in you, the hope of glory, is Jesus living in you, giving you confidence that you will see that final glory and share in it. John puts it this way in his letter, 1 John 3, 2 and 3, verses I absolutely love. He says something like this, he says, beloved we don't know what we will be, but we know that when we see him seeing him, we shall be like him. On that day when Christ comes again, and this is our blessed hope, Paul says in First Timothy, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On that day when Christ, who is resurrected and reigning at the right hand of the Father and living on us, on that day when he becomes visible to us, not by faith, but by sight, we shall see him, and the very mechanical act of seeing him in his glory will transform us into the glory that he has. And that's what we live for. That's what we wait for. That's what we hope for. And the pastor's job is to get you to see that and to look for that and to long for that. For that day when Jesus comes and we see him in his splendor and see him in his might, when we see him radiant in beauty. And the very beauty itself floods our souls and transforms us And the outer clay of this mortal body cracks and explodes and the very glory that's in us bursts out to mingle and meet with that glory that is in Him. That's what we live for. That's what we wait for. That, beloved, is our blessed hope. Christ coming to gather his people. And of all the teaching and all the preaching and all the suffering that any pastor finds himself involved in, it is meant in the end to help us see the glory of Christ among the nations in us and coming fully for us. In other words, it's the pastor's job to lovingly put his hand beneath your chin and raise your gaze to the coming of the Lord. That you behold him in his glory. Which brings us to our final thing. the shepherd everyone to maturity. Verses 28 and 29, Paul says, There him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ." For this I toil, I work hard, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. This is a wonderful statement of the Christian ministry here. By putting him first in the sentence in verse 28, Paul is, is giving Jesus the emphasis in this sentence. You, you guys know how this works, right? So if you got a, a child that's, you know, getting on your nerves or something and, you know, you, you, for just a moment you're in your flesh and And if you're focused on him, what do you say? You say, boy, stop it, right? The emphasis is on boy, you're addressing the person. But if you switch the situation and you're more concerned about, say, the danger or the thing that they're doing, you don't begin boy, you say, stop it, boy, right? The thing you're emphasizing, you put first in the sentence. The Greek language works the same way. And so Paul says, Him we proclaim. Jesus we proclaim. He is the message of our preaching. And in fact, it's because He's the message of our preaching that we go on to warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom. In other words, he's taking the word of God and he's taking the message of Christ and he wants every Christian pair of eyes and every Christian pair of ears to hear both the warning and the teaching. To hear the stop it boy and the boy, come do this. The girl, come do this. To, to hear the, and to heed the, the warning signs. And all Christians need this. Again, just this past week as elders, we, we were trying to heed together a warning about our shepherding of you. We're not free from needing this. And we know your lives need it as well. And every Christian needs teaching, formative instruction, needs to come to understand the the way of Christ. When you're converted, you don't know how to live as a Christian. None of us do. And most of us have lived our Christian lives without sort of organized discipleship. And so we've put it together the best way we can, haven't we? Paul here means the intentional instruction of God's people so that, notice the purpose, we might all grow up into maturity in Christ. Or you may have the King James Version, it talks about perfection in Christ. Paul is not talking about perfectionism here, he's talking about completeness. That together we might be complete in Christ, mature in Christ. It's the same image he has over in Ephesians chapter 4. That as one body we supply to each other until we all grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. As one man, full and complete. Now notice this warning and this teaching has to be done with all wisdom. You see that there? Beloved, that's hard. I don't know if you know that, but that's, that's hard. Pastors don't always get it right. Any more than parents with their children always get it right. We want to, but we miss the mark sometimes. I know I have. Warning and teaching can be undermined if we deliver it foolishly. Christians can miss the point because of how a thing was said or when it was said or even where it was said. It takes a great deal of divine wisdom to proclaim a due word in due season. That's why we find the wisdom literature speaking to this. Proverbs 15, verse 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in due season, good season, how good it is. But that's hard. And the reason the struggle is worth it is, look, look at the goal again. To present everyone mature in Christ. Now, you might recognize that from our five M's as a church. One of our M's is maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ according to the unique design that God has purposed for men and women. This goal to get everyone to heaven ready for Christ is why we exist as a church. This is what we work for. Notice in verse 29, Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. His work is so difficult that it can only be done in God's strength. Notice, it's God's energy powerfully working in Paul. It's not Paul's strength. It's not Paul's wisdom. The work of God must be done in the strength of God. Let me put it this way, beloved. You don't want a pastor digging around in your life trying to get you to heaven in his own wisdom and strength. See, your need plus my flesh equals our hurt. Your problems Plus, my wisdom equals your frustration. (laughs) Your need and your problems, though, plus God's wisdom and God's strength equals your maturity in Christ, your readiness for when He comes. So, think back to those statistics for a moment on pastors 70% without friends, X percent facing depression, another Y percent low self-esteem and so on. I I wonder how many of those men discouraged, embattled, depressed and ready to quit have reached that point because they're doing the work in their own strength and wisdom. It cannot be done that way. The pastor needs to know that and the church needs to know that. How do you know that when you see it? Well, you'll find a man committed to prayer You'll find a man committed to the Scripture. You'll find a man who seems to be enduring and bearing up under pressure as if it were nothing. Not because he's strong, but because Christ in him is strong. So let's conclude. If you're a member of ARC, this is not simply the church you belong to. Think of this as the community in which you get ready to meet Christ. When you come on a Sunday morning or attend your small group or come to Bible study on a Thursday, you're not simply going to hear or study God's word. You're going to see glory and be reminded that Christ is in you. The hope of glory. When suffering comes to you or comes to your leaders, you're not merely witnessing an unfortunate circumstance. You're seeing the life of Christ overflow in your life and ours. And you will see, by the grace of Christ, the church built up. There's always more going on than meets the eye. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. That's why we don't stop with what we see. That's not hope. The Bible says if you can see it, it's not hope. We look forward to what we don't yet see. We anticipate it's coming, and because of that, we rejoice. The Christian ministry ought to be the happiest job in the world. Not because it's pain-free and easy, but because it's service to Christ and His bride. And it's worth it. If a man desires to be an overseer, a pastor, the Bible says he desires a noble task. 1 Timothy 3.1 May this noble calling always in this church be done by noble men in the most noble way for the glory of Christ and the blessing of His people. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we give you praise and thanks for the faithful pastors we have known. I think even now of pastors that most in this room would never have heard of or never have seen, who have left their fingerprints, your fingerprints, on my life. I think of hearing the gospel preached by John Cherry from Exodus 32, my wife and I being saved that that Sunday morning. And I think of the faithfulness of Reverend E.R. McNair now gone home to glory. Visiting the sick and the shut-in. Praying with the saints. Preaching the word. Guarding the pulpit. All in that small town. My wife's hometown. I think of Reverend F.D. Betts. Man who preached God's word as best he could. Who loved God's people as best he could. For 55 years in the same church. It won't be known on preaching circuits. There won't be books written about him, but his name is written in glory, and he has received his reward. Faithful men. And we praise you for the many, many, many faithful men shepherding your church around the world, even this day. Strengthen them, reward them, keep their eyes fixed on the blessing of the church and the hope of glory in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I praise you for this congregation of saints whom you have called together, who have covenanted together to love you and to make sure that your gospel is preached and to care for each other. And I praise you for the ways in which this body of believers are a constant encouragement to us as pastors who even in the midst of difficulty and conflict have often modeled charity and humility and graciousness, have, have shared with us the hard things of their lives and have seen with us your grace break up the hard places and place there fresh, fertile soil. We we'll give you praise for these, your people, who encourage us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would keep us pastor and people working together for joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him known. Bring others to yourself. Build your church. Show the riches of the glory of this mystery among all the nations we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.